0: Well, it's a great pleasure to be here. I apologize for showing up a little late tonight. I had a, a uh, commitment to do a presentation to a training with an organization called CARA that does grief counseling. Uh, it's kind of like hospice only after death instead of before death. And I was working with uh, people who had lots of concerns and feelings, and uh, I was unable to get away as quickly as I thought I would. So apologize for creaking on the floor coming in in the middle. <laughs> I started sitting meditation in 1968 by uh, the University of Washington's Free University. It was a class that was taught by a man who was a student of Krishnamurti. So Krishnamurti was my first exposure to Buddhist thought. Um, Actually, Krishnamurti's thought. He always said that he wasn't a Buddhist. (laughs) And he wasn't anything. He didn't want to be assigned any ist whatsoever. And in fact, he would say in the middle of his talks, do not listen to the speaker. The speaker will lead you astray. He will say things that will confuse you. Do not listen to the speaker. But he said some very insightful things, and I want to start out tonight with one of the thoughts that he shared this is quoted in Voices from Spirit Rock, which is a wonderful short book by Jack Cornfield and edited by Gil and Nancy Van House. It's a wonderful uh, compilation from all the teachers at Spirit Rock as of about 1995. The section on fear starts out with a quote from Krishnamurti it is not that you must be free from fear. The moment you try to free yourself from fear, you create a resistance against fear. Resistance in any form does not end fear. What is needed, rather, is not running away or controlling or suppressing or any other resistance. What is needed is understanding fear. That means watch it. Learn about it. Come directly into contact with it. We are to learn about fear, not to learn how to escape from it. Not how to resist it. Not the usual understanding of courage. come directly into contact with it. This is the season of darkening. The days get shorter. The sun dips lower on the horizon. And our bodies that have been made over the last depending on how far you go back, eight million years, roughly to our ancestor that stood upright and walked on two feet and had a lot of the similar characteristics that we do. So in eight million years, our bodies are descendants of those survivors and those Beings that lived before us, our ancestors, had to deal with fear. This time of year was a a quickening of that sense what's coming? Will I be safe? Will I survive? 2,500 years ago the one that we call the Buddha started a sangha kind of like us tonight people who were attracted to his particular thinking and understanding and his presence and he started a sangha, a gathering and the The word that's used in the scriptures to refer to people that came and were attracted to that gathering is bhikkhus. They were bhikkhus. The literal translation of bhikkhu means fear-seer. One who is able to see though in the midst of fear. And one who is able to see Fear as it is. So our spiritual ancestors who were this sangha, this group that started out very small and grew to be billions around the world, the origin of it was fear-seeing. So when I read that, I thought, who are my inspirational fear-seers? Who are the people that I am inspired by, who I know have looked upon fear and who see fear? And what came to my mind first is Stephen Levine, who has written many books on death and dying, and it just so happens that My practice out in the world is around death and dying. I I work with people that have survived a suicide, Uh, someone close in their family has suicided or has um, died from homicide, and uh, other forms of tragedy and loss. But that's my practice. Stephen Levine... uh, had a workshop over in Oakland that I went to a weekend. And it was him kind of on the stage and a very large room that was filled with about 500 people. And many of those people were not sitting upright. Many of them were lying down on cots and mattresses and whatever they could bring. They were in the later stages of cancer or the later stages of AIDS or various kinds of illnesses. So there was this group that was kind of around the back, and then there were people in the middle that were their supporters who were able-bodied people. And he held forth with this group for one whole day, actually a whole weekend, and helped this group kind of makes sense of this unthinkable state that they were in, facing what was coming. The unthinkable state of being on the short end of a life. He would, uh, one by one, people would come and speak in the microphone, and then he would answer them, respond to them in a Supportive way. But the piece that struck me so much was that I absolutely knew in listening to him that he had looked upon death and suffering and pain and loss, and he had been very intimate with it, very close to it, and he was not afraid. It's absolutely remarkable. And I've been inspired by that ever since. And actually, it's a Buddhist practice, the practice of Marana Sati, to go to the charnel ground, to look upon all the pieces of the body after death, and to look at the dissolution of that, and to look at the bones, and the hair blowing away in the wind, and to realize that this is our fate. This is all of our fates. And yet in the midst of that, we can live a vibrant, positive life that we contribute to others and to our world. So what are the origins of fear? Where does this Phenomenon that is so wild, so intense, so moving for us. Where does that come from? One of the writers that I've found great help from is Diane Ackerman. And she was part of a suicide hotline. So she's written, I don't know, maybe 12 books or something like that, really fine literature And in the midst of that, she signed up to be a volunteer at the suicide hotline. And so one of her books was the story of people that call into this hotline and how she works with them. It's called A Slender Thread. It's one of her lesser-known books, but I found it very, very important. And in it, she talks about how this element of anxiety and fear and Anticipation um, lives in our bodies because of descending 8 million years from people that had to survive. She says, anxiety, dread, panic, aversion, depression. They warn us of potential dangers so we can prepare. Indeed, the full banquet of our cherished traits, and tastes, as well as the bestiary of our negative behaviors evolved at a time when humans lived in small bands of hunter-gatherer scavengers. To us, their lives seem arduous and uncertain, but heaven knows what they would make of ours. The only thing is, we still navigate by their maps, still respond according to their instincts, still act like hunter-gatherers. Though we grapple with problems they would not have encountered, understood, or valued. Our terrors are their terrors. Our hungers, their hungers. Our pleasures, their pleasures. Our worry, their worry. We speak the same emotional language. Only the details have changed as our vocabulary evolved to cope with everyday life but our emotional grammar did not. We carry many of the same psychic burdens, only the satchels are different, how we fill them and where we lay them down. We're prepared for their world, not ours. And strain doesn't begin to describe how emotionally off-balance, misfit and cramped we sometimes feel as we try to improvise with outmoded tools. In terms of neuroscience, the part of the brain that processes fear for us is called the amygdala. And it comes from, I think it's the Greek word for almond. It's an almond-shaped part of the brain that sits below the higher-functioning brain. In evolutionary terms, it's the seat of what used to be the nose brain. As beings, we used to have better noses than we do now. And we had a very, very powerful neurological system that processed smells and then caused us to react The last eight million years, our nasal needs have dropped down. And so we don't need that brain so much for smells. And it's become the seat of quick response, anxiety, anticipation. As the Buddha said, bow to your mind. It seeks to protect you. And like I would say, bow to your heart-mind. It seeks to protect you. The Buddha said there were two causes for fear. The first one, we can all guess, clinging. Our attachments, our fixations, those things that we can't lightly let go of, in good humor, and move on. Clinging. And then interestingly, he said, the second source of fear is leading an unvirtuous life. Interesting as we think about what's a high priority in our lives. How much of our lives would we say is leading a virtuous life? Any part of it that we wouldn't say is a virtuous life may be a source of fear. Not necessarily a fear that we can ascribe to a cause, but that fear that sits there and eats away the depression. So these things are there to lead us and protect us, And yet, aren't they troublesome? So I want to share some practice tools for dealing with fear as we come up on Halloween and the dark time of the year and Thanksgiving and Christmas, which are well-known times of high anxiety and high stress. These ritual times that should renew us, depending on where we're coming from, may be a big obstacle, a huge challenge. So here are some practice methods or approaches for dealing with fear. First thing you can guess, being present with what is What a wonderful practice just to sit with what is. I just shortly ago finished a two-week retreat with Gil. And he shared about the word samadhi. Samadhi, our experience of deepening, of moving into that space of the open sky, and the warm covering and to do it inwardly. And Gil said that samadhi comes from two words. The first one means to stop, to just stop. And the second one means to stand. So samadhi, when the original sangha got together, people needed a word for referring to this state that they were being led to, and they came up with stop, stand. So that's our first practice option, to stop, to just stop and just take a stand. Gill said that the best English equivalent that he could think of is compose. The word with, come, and pose, to stand. So that's a kind of an English equivalent of the Sanskrit word, samadhi. The second practice came from a story that is one of my favorites from the scriptures. The uh, bhikkhus wanted to practice and find a safe place to practice. And it was a challenge for them because they had to move. They were the homeless ones, the mendicants. And every season except during the rains, the three or so months of monsoons, they were on the move. And they went from place to place. And so everywhere they went, they had to find safety. And in one particular locale, the Buddha directed them to go practice in a wood that was nearby. And so they went to practice in the woods and they they were there overnight. And during the night, there were many frightening noises that came out of the darkness. They could hear snakes slithering and they could hear tigers scratching and they could hear all sorts of sounds that were concerning and upsetting. And in the morning, they came running over to the Buddha and they said, Oh my goodness, we can't practice in this location. And he said, Oh, but you can and they said, but there's all these frightening sounds and animals, and and we're just totally preoccupied. We can't get into any sort of spiritual space whatsoever. And uh, the Buddha's instructions were loving kindness. So this is the beginning of loving kindness in the Buddhist tradition. And he gave... Very specific instructions, which we probably, many of us, have sat through loving-kindness sittings and retreats. But the origin of loving-kindness in the scriptures is as an antidote to fear. And isn't it wonderful to think that anywhere we are, we have the opportunity to express loving-kindness and thereby to have somewhat of a respite from our fears. So stop and stand. Practice loving kindness. One of my favorite fear teachers is Joseph Goldstein. He's... Um, he's very tall, uh, imposing man, just a uh, huge presence. He walks in the room, and the room just reverberates. And it's so wonderful to hear somebody who is completely admirable and looks like they're bulletproof uh, to talk about fear, their fears, fears that he's had. One of his practices with his fears is labeling and naming. Oh, there's that anxiety again. Oh, there's that neurotic pattern again. Naming it, calling it Agnes or... Brutus, or, ah, there's Brutus once again, urging me to protect myself, urging me to get away, urging me to be small, not to be my large self, urging me to be quiet, to be sheltered, to be withdrawn. Oh, Brutus, there you are once again. Joseph talked about a particularly difficult fear retreat that he had sat, and uh, he was talking about it with uh, Sharon Salzberg, his partner, co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society in Bury, Massachusetts. And he went on at great length about the the details of it, and the, the origins of it, and the pathos of it, and the... Anxiety and the, the the floridness of this fear, and he said, Sharon looked at him and said, "But Joseph, it's only a mind state." And he thought, "Yeah, <laughs> it's all in my mind." So labeling and naming. One of the other tools that I use a lot for myself is grounding. Grounding, being connected with sensation, noticing the butt on the cushion, noticing the knees with twinges, noticing the breath even when I'm not meditating so grounding being in the body being on the earth being connected probably remember the story about the night that the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree and was visited by the demons and the the anxieties and the fears. And the last and most ominous was uh, a fear that attacked him personally. Who was he? Who was he to think that he should be enlightened? How dare he? A simple, mortal person with a background of normal living in the world. How dare he think that he could have such an exalted state? And his response makes me shiver when I think about it. No words. He simply took his hand and gestured toward the ground. Meaning, I am with this earth. I am from this earth. I am an element, a living element of this earth. That is my credential. That's my connection. That's my identity. And I think about that whenever I go out into nature and I think but how wise it is to have that that connection with the life that that lives in this very small surface of our earth. You go down a few hundred feet into the soil or you go up into the sky a mile or so and that's it. There's no life outside of that. Just this thin film that coats our planet. To be identified and connected with that. To be grounded. To be part of nature. Wes Nisker says, to be naturally human. That's what we aspire to. To be naturally human. Another practice to remember um, <laughs> um I'll briefly outline the way I think of it. And this is the fourth of the noble truths. The fourth noble truth is the path to achieve cessation of suffering. And so the path, as the Buddha talked about it, or it's identified in the scriptures, is the Eightfold Path, and the Eightfold Path is memorable to me in having an hourglass shape, so that at the top you have a teardrop that faces downward, and at the bottom you have a teardrop with the point that goes upward, and the the place in the middle is where the teardrop meets. So this is the shape. It's kind of like a figure of eight, or a infinity sign on its edge. And in the top of the teardrop, top teardrop, are the three elements of the path that relate to inward work. Right view, right intention, and right understanding. So those we can do within ourselves. We must prepare with those. The bottom teardrop are the elements of the Eightfold Path that relate to being in the world, to being connected with other people and living a life in the world. And those are right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And they're joined in the middle by the two pieces that we practice when we sit on our cushions. First, concentration, right concentration, so that we're focused, distractions drop away, our mind, our heart is uncluttered, clear as the wide blue sky. So, right concentration. And then the last of the Eightfold Path is right mindfulness, being with what is. Noticing, having that alertness that seeks nothing and that is attached to nothing. So, unattached alertness, presence. So, top view, intention, and understanding, bottom, speech, action, livelihood joined in the middle and made really workable, I think, by this practice of concentration and mindfulness. So as we sit, that's how I think of what we we do. We link the inner preparation with the outer expression. And as we concentrate and as we use mindfulness, that all becomes manageable. So those are the tools that I think are particularly present for me. The end result is fearlessness. So as we use our practices and our principles, as we sit and become clear and become ourselves, really who we are spontaneously, we have the opportunity to be fearless. I see Patty, I just noticed, uh, or uh, a memory came back of a wonderful time we had when we took the um, children's program for a hike. And uh, it was when we used to sit out at, uh, in Portola Valley and there was an orchard nearby. And uh, so for the children's program, we took the kids for a walk through this orchard. And it was so fun just watching them, just just to be in this orchard and find all uh, the remnants of things that had dried up and, and whatever. And we got to a tree, and... Uh, threw a rope over a branch in a tree and we were kind of swinging on this rope. And I had tied a knot on the rope. Do you remember this? (laughs) I had tied a knot on the rope. And uh, and so when I first hooked it up, it was okay. You know, I could have gotten it down, but the kids were swinging. And every swing, they tightened that knot. And so it came time to leave. (laughs) We couldn't get the knot loose. And uh, I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, here's an unplanned thing. I mean, I was going, oh, what do we do? What do we do? The knot's way up there at the branch. And we've got this rope hanging down. We can't leave the rope hanging in the tree. Who knows what legal problems we could get into if we did this. And so I was perseverating on this. <laughs> and while I was running my fear trip, one of the kids... Oh, no problem. Climbed up, grabbed onto the mat, <laughs> pulled it down, and ended up being a great experience. So, fearlessness. How wonderful to be like a child and have that exuberant fearlessness. So we'll sit for a few minutes, and then I'm going to read that poem from Hakuen once again, just at the end of our sitting, and then I'll ring the bell. And then if you would like, I would very much like to have a little dialogue for those that would like to and stay. Please feel comfortable to do that. Uh, Or if you need to go, uh, please feel free to go. And um, if you do go, I wish you a wonderful Halloween and uh, boundless skies of fearlessness. So we'll sit for a few minutes. So as we face those anxieties and longings, concerns that are there to protect us, sometimes we don't see the protection, but they, in their own mindless way, seek to protect us, to deal with a confusing world in a world that has fearful sounds and uncertainties ahead. A few words from the Zen Master Hakuen. How boundless and free is the sky of awareness, how bright the full moon of wisdom. How warm the covering of compassion. Truly, is anything missing now? Fearlessness is right before our eyes. This very place, this very body. thanks very much for your attention. Any uh, sharings about your practices with your fears? Any sharings about fear itself or the boundless sky? Lynn?
1: I was on a um, a Dharma night recently and I was talking to one of the fellow sangha members and we were discussing I don't know if he had gone to a different uh, talk and said that teacher was saying uh, about 98% of what we do is, um, comes out of our fear of what will happen if we don't do it or, you know, and only about 2% of what we do really comes out of love. And so we started examining this because I was saying I always you know, I, um, actually I had mentioned a fear-based uh, motivation <laughs> and then I started so now I'm paying attention to when I do something to try and do things out of a love-based motivation, and how that really changes your um, relationship with it. And I don't know. I guess I would ask everyone to reflect on, you know, things they do in their life and see if that number of 98% is really accurate. <laughs> since we were trying to figure out where that came from. And if, you, if you're more motivated by fear, or they won't be, um, have that same you know, uh, push.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the problems with fear is it narrows our focus. And rightfully so, when you were dealing with tigers and lions. You didn't want to be thinking about the you know harvesting crops or tomorrow's uh, yam that you had to clean. You needed to just be one pointed and focused, but uh, our lives aren't set up that way anymore <laughs> now we need to be very broadly focused so I don't know, it sounds a little pessimistic to me. <laughs> thoughts and things to share. Big things that are going on in the world, if you really look at it, this is very much based on fear for opening up to the big mm-hmm. Yeah, and the scriptures it talks about, you know, uh, people would come to the Buddha and say, you know, how do we deal with this king who wants us to go to battle and so forth? And, and, uh, <laughs> So often he'd, he'd say, You know, you, need, you really need to deal with your fears. And when you deal with your fears, you'll know how to deal with that king that wants you to go to battle. So he kept telling people, Go into yourself, be a light unto yourself. Which meant, don't let the king be your light, too. I guess we have a long tradition among kings of fear being a pretty good tool. Any other thoughts? Thank you very much for coming. It's uh, a real reward to me to um, have this sangha so um, vibrant. Come here on a Thursday night. Thursday night used to be our off night with not much happening and nobody showing up. And before that, there was no Thursday night. And now, Thursday night, is this this vibrant sangha of people. It's magnificent. So thank you very much for being here. And uh, I wish you a boundless sky and a warm covering as you go into the winter months. And lots of clarity and concentration when it comes to those protective fears.